Welcome to the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics. Welcome back. Today we're going to talk about surgical jaundice in the neonate. And we have Dr. Mari Kirsten from the Pediatric Surgery Department and Steve Beaker Academic Hospital with us again. Welcome back, Dr. Kirsten. We're looking forward to this podcast. Good morning, and thank you for the opportunity to discuss this important topic. Now, neonates often have jaundice within the first week of life. And that is physiological jaundice. And the reason for this lecture is to alert you when to investigate these babies. Is this now physiological? Is it a medical condition? Or is it a surgical condition? Now to understand jaundice in a newborn baby, you need to know the whole differential diagnosis of neonatal hypobilirubinemia. But today we're actually going to focus on the surgical causes. So when is this pathological jaundice? If the jaundice was present on day one of life, if the baby was born with jaundice, it cannot be physiological. If it's prolonged neonatal jaundice, which means the baby is jaundiced and it continues after the 14 days of life, then it's definitely pathological. And then if you've got jaundice and pale stools together, it is an indication that this is obstructive jaundice, a surgical cause most probably, and you'll have to investigate. Can I correct myself? That's not true. <laughs> if you've got a baby with jaundice and pale stools, this is obstructive jaundice. And the big differential diagnosis now is, is it a surgical cause or is it maybe neonatal hepatitis? And clinically and even on histology, it can look exactly the same. And therefore you need to know how to evaluate and decide when you should refer to a pediatrician and when should you refer to the pediatric surgeon. What is the differential diagnosis of neonatal hyperbilirubinemia? When you've got a jaundiced baby and uh, you, you're worried about this baby, initially if you think this is physiological jaundice, you'll just do the total bilirubin because then the most common cause would be physio uh, physiological jaundice and you need to give appropriately phototherapy for these babies. But if there are any other clinical signs, then of course you should think about the other ones. There is a table to help you to summarize these. And if this jaundice continues, baby doesn't respond, there are any other clinical signs, you will continue and do proper liver functions and not only a total bilirubin. And then you will look if it's unconjugated or conjugated. How does this help us? The unconjugated ones are the medical problems. So what is the most common ones with hemolysis? It could be an ABO incompatibility, it could be an RH factor, and it could be infections. Now, which infections could this be? It could be infections of the liver, hepatitis, caused by hepatitis A, B, or C, or by the torches. 
It can also be a baby with a urinary tract infection. So if you're concerned with this unconjugated bilirubinemia that's not responding to your phototherapy, please do a dipsticks on this baby's urine. And then a child with acute septicemia would also have jaundice, but then they don't present with a jaundice. They present with the septicemia symptoms. What are they with uh, hemolysis, the common ones? I've already said physiological jaundice. It could be polycythemia. It could be a mother with diabetes, or it could be breast milk jaundice. Now, please note that breast milk jaundice is at the bottom of this table. And don't stop breastfeeding because you don't do investigate for the other causes. Now, let's look at the rare causes. With hemolysis, it could be any one of the hematological diseases. The most common one that we see is spherocytosis sickle cell anemia or thalassemia, especially because we've got lots of mid-Africa patients in, in our country. The rare ones would be hypothyroidism, very easy to exclude. You just do a TSH on these babies. It could be ITP, immune thrombocytopenia, or it could be some strange syndromes. And now we go to what are the causes of the conjugated hyperbilirubinemia? And that's what we call the direct bilirubin. If that one is uh, raised, then we should think what could be the common causes, what could be the rare causes. Again, the common causes infection that we've already mentioned above. And then we also see that babies that's on TPN for bowel obstruction for prolonged time, they develop uh, uh, jaundice as well. And then the very important one is neonatal hepatitis, where we sometimes do not get the cause, but it's proven um, when you exclude biliary uh, atresia. So we categorize biliary atresia as a rare cause because it is not so common but it does not make it less important and we'll discuss a little bit about that. The other ones are cholidocal cyst, um, hepatic infarction and then some metabolic problems um, and some syndromes uh, which are really very rare. In adults we worry about complications such as acute cholangitis, bleeding, acute renal failure and pruritus. Do we see the same complications in the neonate or in young children? And if we don't, what complications do we need to look out for? Yes, this is a very important point, the difference between adults and children. And we don't see the complications of obstructive jaundice so early in the children. And I think the, the reason for that is that the liver function is often still intact as a neonate and all the complications we only see at the later stage, mostly when these kids had surgery and maybe it wasn't successful or it wasn't possible to do surgery, and then they develop the complications, but that is months or sometimes even a year or two later. Dr. Kirsten, can you tell us a little bit more about biliary atresia? Biliary atresia's cause is unfortunately unknown. Uh, we think that it might be a viral infection antenatally intrauterine 
and that, that causes this atresia. The important thing about biliary atresia, there are different types. I don't think you need to know the classification, but you should know that it could be extrahepatic, and that is then one that we can correct, which means there's no connection between the liver and the bowel, and we can make a connection. Or it can be intrahepatic, and for that one, there's no surgery to be done. It could be intra and extra hepatic, uh, which makes it more complicated. The very important thing about bariatresia is that this is an ongoing process and we've got three months time to keep, to help this child to have the best prognosis. And how do we go about that to get to the diagnosis? I would like to alert you to some certain points. So if you've got a jaundiced baby with pale stools, you think this is obstructive jaundice, which is correct. Now you've got to do proper liver functions, complete liver functions, and look at the liver enzymes. And the one that stands out for biliary atresia is gamma-GT. And that one is raised not only a little bit, not two or three times, but it could be something like 2,000 uh, or, or 3,000. That is how high the gamma GT is. And the principle in, in our department is if you've got a jaundiced baby, obstructive jaundice, pale stools, and a raised gamma GT, this is biliary atresia until proven otherwise which means you need to speed up your investigations to exclude the infections, to exclude the metabolic problems, uh, to exclude the hematological problems, and you do all those tests at the same time. How can you confirm in your secondary hospital if this is bariatresia or not? And the answer is you can do a proper ultrasound. The principles of the ultrasound is this child has to be fasting for at least three hours. If she, the baby had a full cream breast milk feed, what will happen to the gallbladder if there was one? That gallbladder would contract and it will be empty and when you do an ultrasound, you won't be able to demonstrate the gallbladder. So it's got to be a fasting ultrasound and you look for the gallbladder. The reason being that the bile ducts are so small, it's really very difficult to evaluate them properly with an ultrasound if you're not experienced. And we know that 80% of babies with biliary atresia does not have a gallbladder. So if you've got all those together, then you need to refer to pediatric surgery as soon as possible. Now, why do we have so many babies arriving at our clinic only by the age of three months? And that's unfortunately our health system. The baby maybe was born at home. They did not notice the jaundice. And by the time they get to the hospital, it takes quite long to do all these investigations. We want to do the operation before the baby is three months old. Otherwise, the liver is damaged and you don't get a good result. And what operation do we do? In uh, easy terms, you actually connect the bowel, you suture the bowel onto the liver. 
This was described by a Japanese surgeon with the name of Kasai. And what do we call it in medical terms? It's a portoenterostomy. And the long-term success of these babies is only 30 to 50%, depending on at what age you, you did the operation. And also at the operation, when you dissected the porta hepatis, if there was any bioflow or not. And if um, you, you found at the operation, but that there is actually a connection, you think this might be intrahepatic biliary atresia, uh, or neonatal hepatitis, then we'll do a proper wedge biopsy to look for the causes of this obstructive jaundice. And therefore, when we do the surgery, this is a really major surgery. And we need to make sure that the clotting profile is uh, corrected, that the patient doesn't have low platelets, um, and be in an optimal condition so that we can do this major surgery. If it fails, then the only other option for this baby would be on the list for a liver transplant. What are cholidocal cysts? Cholidocal cyst is the second most common cause of surgical neonatal jaundice. And this is a cyst that can be anywhere in the biliary tract. There's also quite a complicated uh, classification but I think for you to know is how would they present. It can present in the neonatal period or at a later age with an abdominal mass, with abdominal pain, or sometimes asymptomatic. And we find it uh, by chance if an ultrasound was done for another reason. And they usually have jaundice as well, but their liver function intact. So we confirmed the diagnosis with the ultrasound and then the operation is to do a cholecystectomy to uh, excision of that cyst and then also hepatogetonostomy and they've got an excellent prognosis. Moving away from babies, what would be some causes of obstructive jaundice in children? This is uh, not as common as in adults. We, we don't see that very common, but one should think about um, biostones. A liver abscess, if the child's got a severe ascaris infestation, tumors, which is fairly rare in children, liver tumors or pancreatic tumors, and then if the child had severe trauma, that could also be the reason. The one that we see most commonly is actually bile stones, and that is mostly due to hemolytic disease like spherocytosis. And uh, if we make the diagnosis of biostones, we'll actually also in them do a cholecystectomy. Thank you very much for this review on obstructive jaundice in the neonates and a little bit on children. We'll hear from you soon again. Thank you, Dr. Kirsten. Righto. This edition of the Students of Surgery podcast has been produced by TuxFM. Visit www.tuxfm.co.za for young, fresh and relevant content. That was another edition of the Students of Surgery podcast series, where we shed light on common surgical topics.